Hey everybody, welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige. We got one of the most prestigious films we've ever considered from one of the Hollywood's most prestigious directors. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 Rear Window. Uh, this was, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock himself. It was written by John Michael Hayes, which I found out is one of his frequent frequent movie collaborators. They worked together on Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, and The Man Who Knew Too Much as well as Rear Window. And it's based on It Had to Be Murder, a short story by Cornell Woolrich. It stars the great Jimmy Stewart as Jeff, a World War II veteran and some kind of adrenaline junkie cameraman. Uh, like, like think of um, uh, shit. Who's the who's the guy? The Gonzo reporter. Yeah. Uh, Vegas. Uh, <laughs> Fear and Loathing. Uh, Hunter Thompson. Hunter there S. Thompson. <laughs> Think of a Hunter S. Thompson, less typewriter, more camera uh, in 1954. And it also stars Grace Kelly as Lisa, his gorgeous, wealthy socialite girlfriend who's fallen for him. And he's trying to keep at arm's length for interesting reasons. And Raymond Burr, Perry Mason himself, as the hulking Lars Thorwald, his uh, across-the-courtyard neighbor who Jeff increasingly suspects of murdering his wife. Uh, this suspicion will grow throughout the movie, along with our own. Uh, boy, what will be the resolution? We'll have to find out. Um, Alfred Hitchcock also shows up um, to wind the clock at one point. He likes to do his little Where's Alfred cameos. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the consensus top three Hitchcock movies, it seems. Like, you know, the, the, it's, the Hitchcock intelligentsia has various different favorites, but like this is always mentioned um and it seems to be like i don't know it seems like be maybe the consensus favorite for widest appeal or biggest hit um so what did you i guess after after we we've we've said this piece um what's your relationship with hitchcock movies and what did you think of this one uh i don't really have a relationship with hitchcock movies i remember when i was a kid seeing the birds and at this point it's been so long since i've seen it that all i can remember is birds attack people uh, and they're very scared of them. They get stuck in a house, I think, at, at some point because there are so many birds outside. Uh, are you sure you're not, th- you're not thinking of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 bird dimmick? You know, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not 100%. Uh, <laughs> so that's my relationship with Hitchcock is to say basically non-existent. Um, so this is effectively the first Hitchcock movie I really sat down and watched. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised because this is a movie from 1954, um, it is in color, so it's not like my my ultimate kryptonite, which is like old black and white movies. Um, yeah. but I I was impressed with the way it was able to grip me, considering it is a single location, and your POV kind of never really moves away from Jimmy Stewart's character or Jeff. Uh, I don't think it ever does. Like, it, I don't think the POV literally ever leaves the apartment. Yeah, yeah. Um. So it was surprising to me that it was so engaging because it is from top to bottom. Like I, I was, I felt like Jimmy Stewart in, in these scenes being absorbed into the story naturally by the mystery of it. You know, I'm, I'm peering through the binoculars with him. I'm looking into these other people's windows and I'm getting engrossed in their lives just as much as he is. Yeah. And there's a lot of really interesting things that Hitchcock does, um, you know, cinematically with that concept of, you know, the fact that we're watching someone 
who's watching someone and that's kind of like you know peeping tom like he establishes very in the beginning of the movie that this is not something that a a uh, respectable person does and it's not great but yet we're doing it and he's doing it and we're interested and he's interested and it's it's a it's a nice little slow i i would say it's a slow burn except for i was gripped from almost the uh first frame and so, so my relationship with Hitchcock is a while ago, like twenty plus years ago, uh, when the AFI first let like released their top one hundred films of all time. I'm like, I started getting pretensions of culture, and I'm like, you know what? I live right next door to a movie, uh, a movie rental joint. Let they me have look all in these through things. their window and see what they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, these these movies are always on the shelf. I'm going to start, you know, taking I'm just going to knocking them off. And I had a bad run of Hitchcock where I watched like The Birds and Psycho. And I don't know. Again, I was a, a feckless, you know, 20 something. I, I might go back as a 43 year old and think differently of it. But they were slow, bad special effects, uh, camera work, you know, kind of stodgy black and white. Uh, I just they you know this this guy's supposed to be the master of suspense and these are these old creaky films and so then when I got to Rear Window because that was fairly high on the list I remember thinking man because I just I think seen like the summer before or right around this time saw a Shia LaBeouf Suburbia which is supposed to be a take on this film and I'm like, man, I don't give a shit about Jimmy Stewart sitting in his back of his suburban home, watching one f- fucking yard, all this kind of stuff. And I, so, so I, I skipped this film. And then when I watched it, I immediately realized like how wrong I was. Like this isn't because suburbia is kind of like a single backyard, and you know, there's there's not a lot of interest outside of that. This movie, like you're watching this Manhattan like high rise courtyard. There's like what a dozen apartments that you're looking into and what's really absorbing is Hitchcock's ability to paint each one of these apartments has a little story Mm -hmm. you know there's the struggling musician there's the lonely woman who's trying to psych herself up to get put herself back out there after suffering some kind of emotional devastation there's the absurdly beautiful girl who dances uh there's the couple that squabbles there's the couple that sleeps out on their uh, fire escape and lowers their dog down to the courtyard to do its dirty business every day. Um, and and it is kind of fascinating to just add a remove, watch all this apparently natural behavior happening. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I, and then there was a, a, a while where I was, I'm not sure, like I knew something was going to happen, but I wasn't sure like which house it was going to be in. So it's like, you're kind of paying attention to all of them and, um, like I said, I don't want to get too too far into the movie and, and spoil everything, but I just found it really fascinating. I found the character of Jeff, like his apparent indifference to this, again, absurdly beautiful woman in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this wild insurance nurse that comes to berate and massage him every her. day. <laughs> I love her so much. I'm just pissed that I'm paying 1200 bucks for insurance. I've never had a lady come over and massage me. No. Like... Your your insurance your insurance money went a hell of a lot further in 1954 than it does in 2020. Let me tell you. Gotta break let your me leg. tell you. Yeah, I need to break break my leg up to the hip, and then maybe they'll send me one of those uh, sassy, sharp tooth, uh, serpent tongued uh, massage therapists to rub my shoulders and make sure I'm not peeping on people. Um, the other thing is, I just thought that the um, the movie's a lot very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got like kind of modern flirtatious pitter patter between Grace Kelly and Jimmy Stewart. Oh, this um, movie is horny as fuck. Like I, I couldn't believe it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought that stuff was just really charming. And then again, like this, the, the way it is a slow build is with the suspense because at first, you know, it's, it's a curiosity and then it's kind of fascination and then it becomes an obsession. And it was surprisingly late in the movie where I still didn't know exactly what was going on, whether Jimmy Stewart was just taking things too far, whether this person had actually killed somebody. Um, like it, like it, it, it like, you know, this is an old movie. Uh, I, I'm expecting a subversion, but hell, what the hell were they even subverting back then? You know, this is all kind of fresh. So yeah. it, it kept me guessing to the end. And it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's my new favorite Hitchcock film. <laughs> and, and part of that, like, you know, feeling of I'm not quite sure is how they frame his situation. You know, it's, it's like he's stuck in this apartment because he's got this broken leg. And so you kind of feel like, okay, maybe he's getting a little antsy. Maybe he's like, looking for too much where where you know there's some innocent explanation here uh and it carries that throughout the film i thought yeah before we get too far far into the spoiler take maybe i can you know just tell people what the premise of this film is i mean i feel like we've pretty much already given it away uh but yeah jimmy stewart plays this guy named jeff who is kind of um I guess I'd call him a combat photographer, except for he's not just that. Like he's yeah. he does dangerous things, bull like bullfights, wars, insurrections, car uh, racing, like putting himself right in the middle of the straightaway. And that's how he gets into the position he's in. He got ran over by a race car yeah. and he's got a sh- he's got a shattered leg and he's laid up for eight weeks in his apartment. Um, and in the seventh week. Uh, New York City is hit with a heat wave that causes everybody to open up their windows and try. They're desperate to get airflow, which explains the rest of what was kind of be a far fetched plot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Jimmy uh, or I guess Jeff is bored. Uh, he's this adrenaline junkie, and he doesn't have any outlet for it. So he just starts. Uh, you know, he's got his long range, long range telephotic, uh, uh, wide, wide angle I, telephoto. Yeah, telephoto lens, and he starts just starts snooping on people. You know, there's the really attractive dancer across the way. There's the couple that fights. There's the cute dog. There's all kinds of things to observe. And then one day he sees something a little sinister and then increasingly hard to explain activities from one of his neighbors that makes him think that that, uh, there's been a murder committed. And, you know, can he convince his friends? Can he convince the police? Is he losing his mind? Is he making something out of nothing? Uh, that's the rest of the movie. That's literally 90 minutes of this movie's runtime is him getting obsessed with this, perhaps nothing of a case. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating from the first frame to, till nearly the last. Um, yeah, it was also a very successful movie. Uh, it, it had a budget of about a million dollars and it ended up making 26 times that, uh, in the box office, which by any definition of success, uh, is successful. And it was nominated for four Academy Awards. Didn't actually win any, though. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's it was nominated for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Color, Best Sound Recording. Uh, Grace Kelly uh, was not nominated for this, but she actually did win uh, an Oscar that year, except it was for The Country Girl, a, a different movie. Huh. So I've not seen that one. Yeah. What it, was the mon? Do you know what the monster film that w- year was that knocked out Rear Window? Or um, there were, I, I don't know because it lost to a different movie in every category, so it wasn't. Uh, it may not wow. have had a monster uh, 
1954 was a, a stacked year, man. Just like Apparently. brutal competition. Uh, um, and I, I did a little research on Grace Kelly because like you mentioned, obviously she's beautiful, but she's also super charismatic. I thought in this film, um, and you know, with her winning the, the Academy award that same year for a different movie, I was like, man, how much did she work? But she's got two huge high profile movies out. One that also won uh best adapted screenplay that year. So it apparently she only worked for like six years. It's it's well then she became a no shit princess of Monaco, of Monaco yeah and like kind of retired from public life right uh huh yeah and just went and ruled that country for a while uh I bet she fucking did <laughs> it, it, it it's crazy to me though that she's mentioned you know in such high regard having only worked for six years um and it was kind of in her but, early twenties so yeah with this sample size though because she is she's got you know I, and I've you know that. It's funny because you you hear about some of these starlets, you know, like Marilyn Monroe, and then you watch a few of their movies like, okay, I get why they were huge stars. And there's, um, uh, you know, it's like this weekend I I saw an absurdly photogenic picture of Elvis Presley in like 1969, I think. And he was just like getting ready for like one of his random Vegas shows. And he looks like he's ready to go out there and eat the fucking audience. He's just like just this 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 tiger made of sex and charisma and like i was shocked at how many people like were surprised that like elvis presley in his prime was an attractive individual and it's like why would you be surprised if you you only know the like bloated late stage vegas elvis then yeah maybe but like yeah there's a reason why these people have this reputation i think grace kelly you know she's she's like supermodel attractive Mm -hmm elegant and classy but she also has this kind of charisma and gusto that this she needed to sell this character yeah um because like i i don't know it's um it's an interesting thing to go through this relationship with jeff because at first i'm like i don't get this guy he's like okay he's this adrenaline junkie and he sidelines so i understand why he's so cranky but he's just got this dour outlook and especially uh when it comes to his girlfriend lisa like he's spends a majority of the movie trying to run her off mm-hmm. with like, oh, no, you won't. Uh, well, you get at you out in the jungles and uh, your high heels will sink into mud, sweetheart. And then and he's just like constantly like saying like, oh, you're this wealthy socialite. You're, we're from different sides of the tracks. Um, and I don't and I the thing is, is like eventually I, I kind of realized that like, well, I guess they're having a surprisingly mature conversation about this because. Yeah. You know, I guess if uh, Jeff wanted to be a cad, he'd accept all this attention and, you know, drag her out into the jungles and then she'd be miserable. Um, but like they do have these like what felt like very modern, sophisticated conversations about what they wanted in life and whether that stuff matched. And, you know, yeah, it's incredible like I- how how under the radar that stuff is in this film because you get so absorbed into watching the neighbors um, and the mystery of what's going on here that you kind of you could pretty easily lose track of their relationship and how it's developing, but it's, it's a, it absolutely has like a satisfying arc with a, a very strong and emphatic conclusion. And I was just impressed as impressed by the emotional uh, angle of the relationship as I was with the mystery of this, this film. Well, and I felt like that there was like this expert pacing to the peeping stuff. Yeah, where, you know, you'd get like 10 or 15 minutes of just watching Jimmy watch people and then his nurse would come and something would happen. You'd reveal something about his character and then you'd go back. Every time that happened, I I felt Uh like, don't turn away from the window. I want to know what's happening over here. Like 
every time he turns away from the window, I'm thinking you're missing something. Something's going right. to happen. It's going to break the case wide open, and I want to see yeah, it. Yeah, God yeah, damn it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was part. I think that's part of the tension of building the like the yeah. fact that sometimes you do tear your. And also, as an audience, we feel like you know, and Grace Kelly's in his lap. It's like essentially you know, kneading his chest and kissing him and being like, pay attention to me. We're like, damn, man, uh, pay attention to this lady. But on the (laughs) other hand, we're also impatient to get back to the peeping. Yeah. Uh, And that's, you know, when they, uh, this is the first movie I saw where people say, oh, Hitchcock's the master of suspense. And I'm like, oh, I I understand that Mm -hmm. because, yeah, the the, the, the pacing is just so well done. And I want to talk about the set. Yeah, because it's one of the most incredible things I've seen. Uh, Hitchcock had this entire courtyard and like exterior street built that's supposed to re- resemble something out of like I think it's Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village, Greenwich, yeah, um, in uh, in 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 Manhattan, and it looks exactly like this. And it was designed this this big elaborate like five six story stage. It was designed with like custom plumbing to accommodate this like torrential downpour that happens on set. It had very sophisticated lighting at the time that so they uh, Hitchcock could re- could reproduce atmospheric conditions and lighting. Like there's incredible sunsets. Um, you know we always harp on this on The Walking Dead, but like you know without a shadow of the doubt, whether it's dawn, whether it's high noon, whether it's evening, the sun setting, whether it's the dark of night. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and, and the sky is just like fucking on fire. Um, and it gives you all these abilities that like, it's just a massive soundstage. So you, there's shots where they're wide and you can see the entire courtyard and everything. Like, you know, I, I watched on a very, like a 4k, uh, a copy, and you can in every one of those little windows, you can see people living their lives. And it is extremely fascinating. And Hitchcock is so good with just having just a little vignettes, establishing these characters, personalities, how they interact yeah. with one another, um, selling the heat wave, like, you know, how like kind of lazy and languid people are and like tempers flare. Um, I, I just thought that the set. And it's it's also very kind of heightened realism, um, almost West Side Story with the, mm-hmm. you know, realistic but still clearly fake lighting. Um, it's like a sunset only amped up to the maximum a sunset could be kind of effect. And yeah. I found it just really effective and arresting. Um, yeah. And some of that, yeah. um, you know, otherworldly, not quite real uh, feeling that you get from the look of this movie, I think, comes down to Technicolor. Um, because this whole thing was shot in Technicolor, and what is that? So what does that mean? So, I, I so, thought that meant just film, like color. <laughs> well, well, it is film, but it's all black and white film. So the way that I understand Technicolor to work is that you've got a camera which splits the light coming in into three different spectrums: uh, one red, mm-hmm. one green, one blue. Uh, it, actually, it's not as simple as that. But what you get out of a, a Technicolor camera is a film stock that is a black and white film stock that represents the red spectrum of what you saw, the green on another and the blue on another. And what they do is they dye those pieces of film, uh, their respective colors, and then they recombine them on top of each other. And Mm -hmm. that produces the color effect that you see. So it really comes down to like a physical process of dyeing the film. That is, that is the thing that actually gives it its color. Um, it was shocking to me that because I saw like it was shot in black and white, and I'm like, how is that possible? Because I'm seeing it in color. I thought Technicolor was a process of a post process they did with like uh, 
I don't know, going in and like painting frame by frame or something, but it's really not. It's like hmm. you film it, it's it splits out into three pieces, you die individually in bulk and then stick them back together. But that also explains why the colors seem like super saturated and heightened. Like, yeah. you know, Grace Kelly wears this green dress that's like the greenest fucking thing you've ever seen. Yeah. And you're really it also, only getting it's, it's, one color tone for each color, right? Uh, so they can like, you know, like uh, if it's a muted green and they dye it like a pure green, then it's going to be a very vivid green. Right, right. Um, interesting. Because as like, I, I also just recently watched um, The Wizard of Oz and I was kind of blown yeah. away. Every time I see it, I'm blown away by when it goes black and white, the color and just like, Jesus Christ, this is the most colorful thing you can ever see. <laughs> right. Um, but it's amazing how colorful this film is without any of the whimsy, without any of the glass blown mm. like uh, flowers and the crazy lollipop trees and shit like that. Like it's just um, the other thing you notice is how piercing blue yeah. 90% of the people's eyes are in this film. It's like everybody except the nurse, I think. Like I think the nurse is the only eyes. person with br- brown eyes, but like the, the police detective, Grace Kelly, mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart, they both have just like, wild uh, ice blue eyes that you know attract your attention from across the room it's it's incredible and i think the reason um, it looks so strange to us is because a lot of the times with technicolor if you have muddier tones or like browns or something like combinations of colors they mm-hmm. tend to get wonky when you do the dyeing process and so they either avoid uh, using those colors or they just dye them you know uh, a more vivid and and solid color um, so you don't see a lot of browns in these types of films or yellows. Uh, the yellow brick road being one of the exceptions, but apparently that caused a lot of problems with that process. Ah, uh, um, I think that the 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 setting also is like you can't set it from apart from the set because, yeah. as we've already mentioned, the entire POV of this film takes place from Jimmy Stewart's apartment. You never go outside. You never go to a different room. It's just you're there in this apartment. And because of that, we've already talked about how effective it is just to slip into that role of being a voyeur with Jimmy Stewart. Um, but it also just sets up some damn effective shots. Like some things I'll take with me to my grave is the shot of like Raymond Burr smoking a cigar by himself in a pitch black apartment. And all you can see is that just red ring kind of glow and throb. It's like this low key eye of Sauron. Um <laughs> I thought you were going to say looking when he looks up right into the lens of the camera. Dude, I was like, oh, that, my God. That's a real moment for this whole time. You've been watching this guy unaware. And for the first time, I should have I, I should have seen it coming because yeah. like, it's going to be a moment. But the first time Raymond Burr with his crazy ass face, like figures things out and looks right at you through that telephotic lens. And, you know, th- it's on. This is yeah. where all this suspense has led to. And he, the scriptwriter and Hitchcock expertly have engineered a situation where now, you know, Jimmy Stewart's in his maximum place of vulnerability. He's all alone. This guy knows where he's at. Apparently, all of his theories have come true. Um, but, you know, even then, I was thinking, like, it's entirely possible that this guy, because I, as Jimmy was, like, going around his apartment in the climax and, like, looking desperately for something he can defend himself with, I'm like... Man, I could totally see him getting a poker, bashing this guy's brains out, and it turns out that he's innocent. He's just coming yeah. over to be like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you harassing me? Why are you being such a crazy asshole? 
I'm getting a divorce. You know, it's 1954. Right. We're not just like throwing divorce parties now. Like I, till the very end, I thought it was entirely possible that this was all misunderstanding and Jimmy would be the the villain of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, it also didn't feel cheap that he wasn't. Uh, no. Did you think my few criticisms or where this film starts to creak is in that climax because there was some sped up film work that Hitchcock was trying to do sure. to like increase the drama. And there was some, like, I feel like the action would be cut much more frantic in, in nowadays. Mm, um, yeah. The fact that like four flash bulbs were used, uh, I would have preferred like maybe one or two and the effect of him being blinded lasted much longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the only it. part that felt a little creaky. Like I, I definitely noticed the sped up film, um, but you know I'm not going to judge it too harshly. Like you do what you got to do. I, he clearly like wanted a particular pacing for everything, um, and, and that reflects uh, throughout the film. Like even in the length of the shots, because I I kept noticing when I was watching this movie, they're not cutting away from these scenes. Like I would be shocked if this see if this movie has more than seven scenes in it because they're just you're hanging out with uh jeff with jimmy stewart through the entire movie and you don't really need to cut away that often you cut away when like time needs to pass right because you don't cut away to go see what other characters are doing that's just not how this film works so like i was impressed by how much mileage they got out of each scene and how little they had to cut away to actually change the setting yeah, and I and I read an essay on Reddit where someone's explaining and defending um, Hitchcock's use of the long cuts at the end, and they said that like, uh, you know, the re the, the reason you go into like quick cuts is when you want to destroy and disorient the user or the 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 watcher mm-hmm. the the film the person watching the film yeah. you want to break down the the spatial relationships and make things like you know people are on top of each other, and this film is all about the distance and the remove of the voyeur from the action and us as the audience from the film. And by staying in those cuts and like, you know, building, cause I thought like up until Raymond Burr came through the door was like, I was fucking, you know, sweating bullets and shitting bricks, mm-hmm. eating my fingernails down to the nub. Like, Oh my God. And he busts through this door. What the hell is going to happen? And the long, like, you know, not just long shots of him, like staggering forward, but also like, this is, emphasizing the distance being collapsed hmm. you know one yeah. one foot like one pace at a time and that to an audience back in the day that would have felt like almost unbearable that like yeah. every time he takes a step forward there's the flash there's the blood red dissolve he gets reoriented he takes another step and this and then once like Raymond Burr lays hands on Jimmy Stewart and starts to throw him out the window. Then he starts with the jumbled, like, you know, crazy sped up footage cut because now you are, he's right on top of you. There is no remove. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah. 60 years later, I'm not sure how that works, but that's a fucking dope idea. Hitchcock. No, it, uh, yeah. That's why, you know, that's, that's the hallmark of a good director. He's thinking about that stuff, right? Even if it doesn't hold up 60 years later, uh, he's yeah. at least thinking about that stuff. And my brain was saying stuff like, well, I don't know about the sped up thing or I don't know how convincing this is. But like I did was aware of the fact that I was still very concerned, you know, yeah. like our our Jeff's friends going to be able to race back to the apartment in time to save him because I fuck man. Hitchcock could kill this guy. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock could absolutely kill Jimmy Stewart. Um, 
And the other thing is like, you know, Jim, James Stewart and Grace Kelly are, you know, I, I, I've seen them in a lot of things. I, I guess not Grace Kelly so much, but J- J- yeah. James Stewart at this point, I've seen in several films. I really like him. Yeah. But like thinking of him being like the Tom Hanks of his day where like you don't need any reason to get invested. Like Tom Hanks is on the film from frame one. You want to like him Uh, that like how horrifying it must have been for these audiences to see this character. Like they don't have any remove from like age or whatever. Like this is the biggest star of the day falling in love with the biggest star of his day. And he's like, it's just kind of like man's man, but he's been sidelined for a cool fucking reason. And like people are just locked into this film from frame one. The fact that that still works 60 years later is, I think, a testament to that guy's charisma and Hitchcock's ability to, to capture that and, and ramp up that tension. Yeah, this is only the third uh, Jimmy Stewart movie we've covered. Uh, we've done Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. as well. Um, I would say this is probably the best uh, Jimmy Stewart movie I've seen so far. Um, I like it's those hard other to say. two, but this one is really, really good. No, this one feels modern in a way that I mean, obviously, yeah. Liberty Valance is a period piece. Um, and, uh, you know, shit, it's a wonderful life. What can you say about a wonderful life? Uh, right. It's a, a classic but, podcast on it. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's a fun movie to watch. I'm not sure I, I consider it as innovative or amazing as this film. That's now. what I'm saying. This one feels like a fully modern, like in the yeah. sensibilities and the dialogue, like, uh, there's just some, you know, re- like there's just some really witty dialogue where, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart's talking like admiringly about the lady across the street being all, well, she's just all eat, drink, and be merry. And his, you know, insurance nurse is like, ah, yeah, well, in a couple of years she's gonna be fat, alcoholic, and miserable. And you know, Jimmy St- Jimmy Stewart with the detective friend, he's like, "Come on, why are you interested in solving this case or making me look foolish?" And he's like, "Well, I I like to do both if possible." Uh-huh. <laughs> and 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 just like how the dialogue and setting serves the plot, like especially in the third act, there's a scene where Grace Kelly is going to spend the night, kind of scandalous, and his detective friend comes in and like Jimmy Stewart's very defensive about it because this is kind of scandalous behavior. And he's saying, like, careful, Bill, or whatever. And then the detective uses that to be like, well, what the fuck? You, do you think this guy across the window has got to come in and tell you he's going to get a divorce? Do you think that people don't have their own secrets that they want to keep? You yeah. telling your landlord that your lady, that your girlfriend's spending the night? Right. You Should know? I break into your house and arrest you because it looks suspicious? Like, Yeah. And I found, like, that stuff was incredibly effective because, you know, we get Jimmy's perspective and why it's like nothing is the matter. Um but like scenes like that served not only to because it's like I felt like there's this constant tension of like, well, of course, this guy's done something. This is scandalous. And then the detective would like kind of poke around and be like, no, there's there's reasonable answers for all of this. And I just kept going back and forth with like, ah, Jimmy's overreacting. He's this is a this is a movie about obsession. Um, and like, you no, know, but no, the movie is about exactly what it purports to be about. Um, I feel like nowadays the movie would have to subvert it because right. everyone would be expecting it. But no one had ever made a movie like this before. Mm. So what the hell are you subverting? The audiences had no expectation. They were just scared that Jimmy Stewart might get throttled to death by the scary looking Raymond Burr dude. Yeah. Um, sure. uh, but, w- uh, one more thing about the, the set setting here that I've got is, uh-huh. is you talked about, you know, how they constructed this set to be this Greenwich Village type courtyard. And I thought that was super effective. Uh, not just from, you know, the perspectives that we talked about with all the visual stuff you can do, but also the sound, uh, the diegetic mm. sort of 
feeling you get of being across a courtyard from somebody and kind of making out just a little bit of what they're saying uh, when they're having loud conversations or hearing some piano music in the background or any of that stuff that they're doing is it really it puts you into the situation of Jimmy Stewart, uh, you know, watching from the window so much more than if you had the sound guy going back in later and recreating a couple of, uh, you know, fake sound effects and trying to put in like words don't quite match up with the lips from across the way, that stuff. I, I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, and it's yeah, kind this- of a shame that it it lost uh, in the Academy Awards for best sound recording because it's good. It's real good. Yeah, the the sound design, how it captures all that, like during different POVs, like the piano music sounds a little bit more echoey, like it's bouncing off the nearby uh, yeah. um, buildings, and like you can hear the faint echoes of the street noise from the alley that kind of connects everything together. And I love that, like just tiny little, you know, uh, a lot key glimpse of the broader outside mm-hmm. world that you can see, like, you know, where the the purported murderer is carrying a briefcase to where does it go? Well, who the hell knows? I only see six feet of the rest of the world. Uh, um, but yeah, that sound design of just like the clinking and clanging and like radio people listening to radio broadcasts and having arguments and fights. And there's, there's, but there's also, um, I think it's brilliant. So many different ways they have to examine this, like, you know, our thoughts about being a voyeur. Um, yeah. and, uh, this is stuff that, like, I guess Hitchcock has explored before. Like, you know, there's a point in Psycho where Norman Bates tries to sink this car in the swamp this, behind the, the Bates Hotel, and the car gets so far, and then it stops with its roof still exposed. And Hitchcock says uh, that every audience he watches get gasped. Like, why are they gasping? Do they want this man to get away from? the the murder and he found that fascinating that he had made this repulsive character but people are kind of like on some level wanting him to get away with it because of the way the film was gazing at him and Mm -hmm. and holding him at a regard and he's intentionally fucking with this this entire movie with like you know what is you know when is it a good idea that you can be a little scandalous when can you be a busybody when can you be eavesdropping and one of the best or most effective ones i thought was this lonely woman lonely woman downstairs where we see have these like fake dates where she's trying to psych herself out she has a a date with a younger man who turns out to be a bit of a cad and tries to take advantage of her um there is and then she's got this bottle of pills and clearly she's going to commit her commit suicide but jimmy's more interested in this potentially fake mystery that he's solving and almost like like forgets that he can actually do something mm-hmm. you know like hey i could at any point in this time you know we could uh, i could send a note over there and be like hey notice you're lonely i'm stuck in the apartment do you want to come over have dinner my girlfriend caters these wonderful meals there's things he could have done uh the one the, the dog the cute dog in the basket which i was delighted with and scandalized when he died uh the neighbors shout like how can you all be this cruel and neighbors are supposed yeah. to look out for and talk and but you got this idea that even 1954, the neighbors weren't like that. Um, yeah, but this idea that all wonder. he could do is passively watch and the idea that he can actually pick up a phone and then he gets distracted with that and almost gets his girlfriend killed. It's like I said, it's, it's, it's interesting examination of the morality and ethics of it without really getting very, very talky and preachy about it. It's just something you're kind of left to wrestle with. And I feel like, you know, the, the thing that he was on to, uh, in this 1954 film that 
says, hey, maybe our communities are kind of falling apart and we're more interested in like the scandal that we might see from our neighbors than actually getting together with them and communicating with them. And there's so many little things he's doing in the film, like between putting up fences between the yards, having neighbors shout at each other over them to shut up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Mind not even coming out of your house to walk your dog, right? Because that would be the opportunity you would have to interact with your neighbors. They lower it down in a fucking basket and let it do it, its own thing. It's like there's no right. contact there. And as much as he was onto something there, it's 50 fold now, right? Like with the internet, mm-hmm. the internet is our telephoto lens sort of peering out toward the the rest of the world. But for a large part of us, I, I think we're we're very, very much isolated from especially our local communities, but really a lot of uh, community at large. Yeah, these trends just, you know, can you like they this breakdown in the community probably happened in the big cities because, you know, yeah. um, when, when you're in your own block in your neighborhood, it's real easy to to keep, um, you know, that 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 monkey brain, 100, 150 person limit of who we can actually physically care about. It's easy to keep your neighborhood in that kind of that circle. But you know, you you blow past that number in one apartment building, right? You know, yeah, and 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 you can see that because like you know, like when that one lady was ranting and raving about her dog dying, I couldn't help but think like if I was a neighbor, I might yell something like, "I didn't kill your dog, but kind of don't appreciate you lowering the shit on a basket, just having a piss and shit everywhere. I stepped <laughs> in its shit last week. How about you lower down a fucking garden spade and maybe your husband to pick it up, like." <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's yeah. it's obnoxious. It's it's kind of obnoxious, isolated, not giving a shit about anybody's behavior. I don't know that I want to be shouting at the crazy couple upstairs who sleeps on their fire escape. <laughs> I looked into <laughs> the recipe. For I looked into murdered that. in the night. Apparently, that's what everyone in New York did during those heat waves. It's the uh, only okay. way these, these like they slept on that. There's I, I there's tons of photos of entire families sprawled out on their uh, fire escape passed out because it was so fucking hot. And those yeah. uh, brownstones, you know, the sun would just bake them all day and those bricks would release their heat and it'd be even hotter than it is outside. So I was thinking this uh, this scenario probably wouldn't uh, be very likely to happen in uh, modern day because we all have air conditioning or sure, you know, a large part of us do. Um Mm-hmm. So you know nobody's going to be opening their windows to have Jimmy Stewart peering in. Yeah, I did, and, and the uh, there's a lot you know because I always like to look peek around and see what people are saying, and like I feel like that that's one of the big things that people modern audiences have a hard time. Like, oh, it's so unlikely that everyone to have their windows wide open, their blinds open. I'm like, the do you have man? No the movie tried. Like- yeah, the movie tried really hard to tell you why these uh-huh. people are doing this and how it is kind of like they were kind of like even there's several moments where the, the people inside are intentionally self-conscious about their behavior with the open window and go to shut it. But like, yeah, it's fucking 95 degrees in the beginning of this movie and probably 90 percent humidity. Yeah, there's no air conditioning. Of fucking course, they're going to have their windows open. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just thought. I loved every single one of the characters. I thought it was charming that even that not only did uh, Jeff get a happy ending, um, but like almost everyone, you you kind of go around the courtyard and everybody's got like a satisfying resolution to their little conundrums. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was, I didn't expect from Hitchcock. I, I thought Hitchcock's the guy that like rips your heart out of your chest, but uh, he took it real easy on us this film. Um mm-hmm. 
And honestly, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly's arc, like the fact that she got sucked into this, she became even more adventurous than him. Like her crawling across that ledge on high heels and sneaking in windows. And when he gets caught up with the the drama going on, the lonely woman and loses track of Raymond Burr. And we see him coming, not just down the aisle, not just in the staircase, but the actual fucking hallway leading up to his front door. Mm-hmm. It's a real moment. And then when the lights turn out, you can't tell what's going on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a cute story that like, you know, just because she's a wealthy socialite, maybe she does want to get her hands dirty. Maybe she does want to get involved in something a little bit more exciting. Yeah. So that's um, the, the, you know, relationship part of this movie that I found just as strong as the mystery. Um, I, I think they do a great job showing this man coming to realize that his girlfriend is much more than he gave her credit for. Um, yeah. If you look at their relationship at the beginning, he wants to call it off because he doesn't think she's the type of person. And, you know, everything she's been demonstrating to him has told him that she's not the type of person who can really mesh with his lifestyle and and vice versa, right? He's not the guy who's mm-hmm. going to sit around. Uh, look at the predicament in he's in and look at how crazy it's making him. He wants to be out there photographing uh, crazy things in crazy places. He doesn't think she can go with him. And by the end of the movie, yeah. they've they've turned that around. Um, he has realized through, you know, both emotionally and literally, this uh, voyeurism of his has showed him what kind of person she is, and he's come to a deeper appreciation. And so, I I really love the end of the movie where we kind of come right back to the beginning before he got invested in this murder mystery, but things have changed night and day. Um, At the beginning, he was kind of looking away from the window. It was so hot. He was bored out of his mind. By the end of the movie, he's doing the same thing. He's looking away from the window, you know, no longer concerned about this murder mystery. Uh, But his, his mind has changed completely about the person he's with. uh, And he's, has he? I don't know if he's learned a lesson from the mystery, but he's certainly learned something about their relationship. Yeah, the only thing that kind of bothered, because like at the end, there's this great shot of uh, her reading this adventure magazine about being in the Himalayas, and she finishes that, and then she picks up Vogue or something. It's just kind of like she is, it's almost like her hero's journey, because that's part of the classic, uh, you know, Campbellian hero's journey is that the hero comes back after an adventure, master of you know both worlds, yeah, the worlds yeah. that the the world that they were proficient at begin, and then they they've mastered the strange alien world. It'd be interesting if Jimmy had also become maybe more appreciative of her side of the world too. Um, I don't know how you would tell that story of like you know why you would appreciate culture and style and things like that, but like uh, I think I think he is like the the slower lifestyle. Um, I think he's come to some kind of appreciation, though he hasn't traveled as far as I, I think he thinks she has. Um, right. But but, you know, there's a smile on his face while he's relaxing. Right. It's not it's not like he's this pent time, up. Yeah. yeah, this pent up ball of frustration because he's stuck in a single leg cast. No, now he's stuck in two leg casts and he's OK with it is is my reading mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still think he wants to get out there and do his thing with photography, but also he's not quite as anxious as he was at the beginning of the movie. Uh, do you have because I've got some random observations that I wanted to, to make about the movie. Do you, okay. you want to go into the shift into that mode? I, I got one more question for you about the, okay. the the structure and the mystery of this movie. Hit me. I didn't see a lot of them 
maybe only one. I don't know. Uh, are there a lot of red herrings in this movie? Because you mentioned how I, straightforward, like the mystery ends up being, right? They could have gone with a big twist, but it turns out to be exactly what they thought it was from the beginning. And all the pieces of evidence kind of just line up. Yeah, I thought so when there's a couple things, I think it's intentionally nebulous about how Raymond Burr's character, Lars, created all of his alibis. Like there's this lady in black that exits his apartment that, yeah. you know, and that, that like, OK, That's she's in mourning. Maybe. The, and I always thought like this is like, OK, well, this is a, this is like a mid 50s divorce, which is kind of taboo and you're not supposed to do it. And, you know, they're all shameful and she's going back to her, live with her folks out in the country and he's going to soldier on as a uh, and that's what was like kind of like my cover for a lot of this. But I thought that there might be like he might be missing uh, the, the lonely lady committing suicide, that the, 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 the the Mrs. Torso might be like raped or assaulted by one of the wolves that are at her door or the young recently married couple. There was some signs that maybe there was some stuff going awry there. Yeah. So I kept on thinking that it's not going to be misdirection, like false clues around Raymond Burr. But like, that's the thing we're fixated on and we're missing some other larger picture. That's that's nefarious. Um, I kept looking for not, like uh, the piano yeah. player, uh, that, that songwriter guy. He was maybe one of them. He comes home drunk and angry one night and i was thinking yep. and it's the same night that that the wife is killed uh yeah over in the apartment so i was thinking oh maybe he snuck over and did it for some reason and everything else is a red herring but honestly like that might that and the woman on the train like you mentioned might be the only misdirection i could really see and i don't even know their misdirections more of just like his clumsy i mean this guy's just not great at committing murder. Although without Jim Stewart watching him, maybe he gets away with it. But like, yeah. it seemed like there was a lot of clay, uh, you know, clumsy and inartful and ad hoc ways of covering this up. But, uh, but I, I don't know because like the, the they 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 I think that the movie's POV is that. But like I'm thinking. This guy killed this guy, got rid of her body without this guy that's just spending his life looking over there without him even seeing it. Um, and he has the foresight to have someone get on a train and send picture and send the freight down and have her pick it up at the station. Like that's a pretty like that would have withstood like casual neighbor scrutiny. Um, yeah. But no, I, I guess I yeah I, I didn't think there's a lot of dang. It's more of kind of like, well, look at what he's doing. It's fucking crazy. And then the, the the police officer would go over there. Well, I talked to him, and it turns out that. You know, she's fine and she left and she's visiting her folks. And like it was more of that. And just like you said, there's there's a lot of conflict that didn't have anything to do with the central stuff in the movie. It's more of just sure. like people cooped up in blazing hot temperatures kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And and I, I thought that's like I constantly I was thinking like, oh, J Jimmy Stewart is just way off in left field and he's missing the actual thing or he's going to frame an innocent man or murder an innocent man. Cause I know that's another thing that Hitchcock is kind of obsessed with hmm. the yeah. idea of a, a, a man, you know, an innocent man being, being punished for something he didn't do. Um, but, but no, I, I, that's before we get to uh, random observations, I want to go back real quick to the relationship because I, I really like how the film lays that out. You know, as much as it is a, a suspense, uh, over this murder mystery. It's also a suspense over their relationship and how that will either, you know, uh, flourish or flounder, depending on what you think is going to happen. Um, and Hitchcock does some really good things with just certain shots um, that tell you both what's going through his head 
what he thinks about her in any given moment. And, you know, and, and I don't know, just gives you an insight into how he's feeling like that, that newlywed couple, um, is probably the prime example, because if you look at them throughout the film, he, he plays a lot with what you can and can't see in any of these apartment windows. And if you look at them, you see them, you see the beginning of this thing, right? Where they're all excited, uh, to, to finally be together and be getting into their home. And this one guy just won't leave so that they can get down to business, uh, uh-huh. their, their dirty deeds. Um, and they shut the blinds and they're gone. Like you can't see into that apartment for most of the film. Um, and mm-hmm. he's looking around everywhere else. And every once in a while he comes back to that apartment. The blinds are still drawn. Maybe the guy hangs out smoking a cigarette and then goes right back in and draws the shade again. And to me, that was, that was Hitchcock saying, this is a guy who is not sure what his future looks like if that were him and Lisa, right? Uh, he, and there's kind he of... He can't even picture it in his head. And, and like I said, I mentioned that most of the apartment vignettes get something of a happy ending, um, but that's one of the few exceptions because like, you overhear an argument where she's like, well, if you're going to quit your job, I would have never married you. Which is the fear that he had about, like, you know, like, uh, like oh, this this woman's going to destroy you and pin you down. And then yeah. they do that and they pin over to Miss Torso. And it turns out she's been faithfully waiting for a soldier boy to come home from Korea, apparently. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, is madly in love with him. So it's kind of like the, the fear versus the hope of, yeah, of, yeah. of Jimmy Stewart's character. Uh, There's just so many things like, like that. And we talked about you. You talk. Um, one of the great all-time cinematic intros of all uh, is is Grace Kelly's entrance in this movie. It's almost shot like a literal dream. Like Jimmy's yeah. falling asleep, and then she he wakes up, and this like angel is standing over him with this, and she's looking right into our souls. It's like the one other time that that happens is when Raymond Burlock's eyes with us, and it's yeah. an entirely different experience. <laughs> oh yes, it is. Uh, and there's I a whole lot confirm. of there's other there's a whole other like there's so many essays been written about how this also was like um, a lot of this film was statements about the patriarchy and the male gaze because like I just I yeah. just realized as I saying that it's like uh, I guess if you're a woman watching this film watching Grace Kelly's entrance is a completely different experience too because it's not more of like oh, yowzers God can you imagine that's beautiful woman looking at you it's more of like uh, yeah. you probably I wish I was her or look how glamorous she is um but there's a whole bunch of that stuff that I think this movie has been endlessly analyzed and theorized about, and you can fit about any theory you want to on it. But, uh, man, what a fucking entrance though. Yeah. Uh, all right. Hit me with some random observations. So I talk a lot of shit about police officers uh, from time to time. Cause a lot of times police officers in fiction are not portrayed well. Uh-huh. What a paragon of virtue and constitutionality this police officer Man, is. This guy won't break, like, won't violate the Constitution just to get in and see what's. Come on, come on. What kind of police officer are you? I mean, it's it is like I wish we had more of this kind of positive betrayal, honestly, yeah, of no people shit. who respect the like you know like respect people's rights and the. I think that this. It seems like this was kind of predominant view of how the police were portrayed until like the 70s and 80s when we got tough on crime and we wanted our police officers to brutalize criminals and we haven't ever gotten it fucking back. Um, Now, behind the scenes, they were literally throwing the book at people, which was like a book that they'd beat you in the face with. Um, So like it's, it's not like they were super, but like. 
Yeah, there is something to this whole fig leaf of like, well, this is how we are portraying and this is how we're supposed to be, right? Yeah. When you give when you throw the fig leaf away, I think we've all seen in the last few years what, what society starts looking like then. But I, I liked it. I liked it. This guy's like, you know, law and order in the best kind of way. Um why does it not occur to Jeff to take pictures with his fucking camera? He's like That's a damn fine question. I, I, it's almost like watching a movie nowadays where they pretend like they don't have cell phones. This man's got a camera in his hands 50% of the time. He's sweating bullets about, oh, this guy's going to get out of here. Or, and he's going he's, he's gonna to miss his uh, chest. It's all tied up weird. And he could just be snapping photos and be like, look at these. Yeah. Well, look at his bloody knife. Where'd it go? Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't. I, and I, 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 they, I needed a film like... Uh, uh, you know, I, I had some film, but it all melted in my apartment and uh, mm-hmm. the drugstore's out like something like why is this award winning photographer not taking pictures? <laughs> that's yeah, that's probably the best question you could ask during this film because it makes no sense. I think the answer is it would ruin the film because, yeah. you know, the there would actually be evidence that uh, this guy could ask about or there maybe not because, again, uh, I feel like the cop took Jim at or J- Jimmy at his word. So yeah. like, but I, it's still, it's like, man, why don't they just take pictures? The other is um, when things got contentious between Grace Kelly and uh, Jim Stewart and the detective, and they're all they're all got brandy snifters. This is the most aggressive brandy swilling I've ever seen on film. All three of them palming these snifters, spinning this this brandy for all they're worth. Did you not see that? I no, I didn't notice it. Like they're just angrily swilling all three of them in in in, in all in the same POV, just like just swilling this fucking brandy as like like it's a paint that they're trying That's what to you mix. Do man, you got brandy? Yeah, uh, I guess. Swill it. Don't ever let that brandy stop in motion, apparently. No, it goes um, bad if you do. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought it's like that's like an impressive amount of, of brandy swilling. Uh, did you have any because did you have any rando oh, observations? I, you I got a ton make? of them. Like the, the piano man Hit has me. the worst underwear in the history of underwear. Uh, oh, shit. See, it's like it's like they took <laughs> leftover scraps of making Andre the Giant's thongs and just said, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Not, all right it's well terrible. i, I want to make a note for my second rewatch of this yeah okay. sure uh-huh good one good one uh did they really put jimmy stewart in a cast for this because it seems like they might have i think they did i think yeah. they did maybe it's articulated like it, it was cutting the at the thigh because it seemed like when he was fighting raymond burr there's a lot more mobility in that than i would have suspected from mm. from uh him but uh I, yeah why not it always looked like it the sucked. Auth- I had a couple. The authentic who ended itching. Up yeah, I've never yeah. had a, a cast like that, but like the constant torment of the itching and his like scratching, po- I thought was a nice little characterization too, and, and added to the oh god, how sweaty and itchy that thing must have been in a ninety degree apartment with no breeze. Holy hell! Yeah, terrible. Uh, I I couldn't get over the, this costume jewelry thing. I when they first showed him stuffing, you know, cleaning out his case and then repacking mm. it. I was like, what the fuck does this guy sell? Costume jewelry? And then it came out, yeah, that's in fact exactly <laughs> what he sells. And the technical right. aspect of it made it look like just this gaudy birthday party ribbon or something that he was selling. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and why his, because I, I was, I asked Cecily, it's like, do women 
or did women ever carry this much jewelry in their fucking purses? Like, it's yeah. weird that he's emptying it and cataloging and all that kind of stuff. But like, when did when like I'm, I'm like I don't know maybe in the fifties you had like oh well I'm this was this is my this was my going to the grocery store bracelet and now mm-hmm. I've got caught out in the rain and I'm in a taxi cab. I should have my travel bracelet on and like there was all this stuff that women were supposed to to know and you know because like this is the this is the time where people showed up to like dinner parties and tuxedos mm-hmm. and shit. So like yeah. that seemed crazy to me. Uh, wh- well, I don't. And Cecily's like, I fucking don't know. I never carried that much jewelry. But no, th- then we got a satisfying answer to it. It's hilarious. That she said, "What does this guy do? Sell costume jewelry?" Yeah, then the then, then the cop comes, comes in. Guess what, Jimmy? He's selling costume jewelry. I my mind was blown. <laughs> and the first question I had is: Is his wife's ring costume jewelry? Her wedding ring? Oh, I would strongly suspect. If I were her, I'd be suspect. I'd be suspicious. I'd be like, I'd take that down. He gives me a ring, and I know he's a costume jewelry salesman. I'm taking that to the jeweler to get it inspected. I did wonder about their relationship because he seemed like he was trying to be sweet to her. Like, he was making her breakfast in bed, and he cut these fresh-cut flowers, and then she, like, throws the flower down and then takes one bite of the breakfast and then then comes out to berate him. And I'm not saying... She should be killed and, and split up into six pieces and buried in a flower bed. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's a that's that's just a bad relationship. Maybe no fault divorces are a good idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's 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 better to do that than like, ah, shit, I guess I got to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, what else you got for me? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure now after seeing this movie that Jimmy Stewart must have a WikiFeed entry. Because there was some disturbing toes on display in this episode. There was some. There was some weird, like out of focus, frightened, you know, gnarled looking toes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a fan. Uh, really, really, in in really steadily increased the ideas we have for people's beauty. They gotta have good looking feet now. Well, if you want to be on WikiFeet anyway. Yeah, we didn't or, get to see or, Grace or, Kelly's or pe- feet. Not in, not in totality anyway. Uh, well, she's got those elegant silk slippers, you know, she was, a, yeah. she wasn't a, she wasn't a fucking whore, Jim. Come on. Huh? Princess didn't... of Monaco. Hold your tongue. <laughs> she's okay, going to be a wiki feet. for calling her she, that. She's going to be a, she's going to be a wiki feet girl. <laughs> didn't think I did, but okay. Uh, well, I guess on that note, we're going to beat our wiki feet out of here. Oh. Uh, and, uh, thank you for listening to our review of the rear window. Uh, we'll be back next week on the Bald Move Prestige for The Wolf of Wall Street. Do you know that movie's uh, getting on ten years old now, Jim? Yeah, I feel, I feel, I feel very old realizing that. And it this was um, right before the era of Bald Move. I thought sure we'd covered it in some capacity. I've only seen this movie I think twice, and I really enjoyed it. I'm I'm looking forward to visiting it, revisiting it. Um, but yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Margot Robbie. Jonah Who Hill. else is in this? Jonah Hill, uh, John Bernthal, right? And his Lobes of Fury, mm-hmm. all in Wolf of Wall Street. We'll be back next week for another Prestige. Hope you enjoyed Rear Window. Check out some Hitchcock films. I know I'm going to be. And uh, until next time, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. I'll see you later. <laughs>